0: Well, thanks uh, so much for being the church today. um, As I'm worshiping through songs, um, it seems like almost for the first time in in two years, as I hear the songs of the church being sung through unmasked lips, uh, it's just a beautiful sound and it's encouraging to me to know that we are Uh, worshiping together. We're here together. Uh, Continue to sing your songs. Ephesians tells us that you sing for the glory of God, but you sing in your heart to remind yourself that God is good, but we speak to one another. So I want to really challenge and encourage you. um, Let's sing out loud. It doesn't, you know, God's Word says, uh, make a joyful noise, make a loud noise. You don't always say, make a beautiful noise. So sometimes, you know, if you are tone deaf, that's okay. Uh, Just let it rip um, for the glory of God. Let it rip for your mouth, right, for the glory of God. Uh, Let's give our best to Him. Amen. Um, if I were to ask you, maybe you can talk about this for a, just a, a couple seconds with someone next to you. You could just think about it by yourself if you're, uh, if you're sitting alone. But if I were to ask you, what would be, what do you think is the one thing that makes successful people successful? What would you say? The one thing that makes a truly successful person, that differentiates a successful person from a person who's constantly tripping up and failing, what do you think that would be? Five seconds, 10 seconds, just talk about it with somebody next to you. You can write in the chat box if you're worshiping from home. You can do that as well. But just think about that. Brains are turning right now. A successful person. Well, there is a man named E.M. Gray. I'm sure some of you have got this, um, will probably have uh, thought of this answer. But there's a man named E.M. Gray who spent his life thinking about this question what is the one thing that all successful people have in common? And he boiled it down to one thing, and he wrote a book called The Common Denominator of Success. His answer was not that they were smart. It's not that they had good friends around them. It's not that they had good fortune. It's not that they had a, a lot of money. The one thing he says in his book, The Common Denominator of Success, is that these people knew their priorities and were laser-focused on what was most important in life. Anyone say that? Min Sun did, that's why she's. Okay, Elise did, good. Uh, 40 under 40, everybody. That's, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Successful people are focused on their priorities and what is important in life. This is the same thing that was echoed by people in our day. Uh, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of them was keep the main thing the main thing. Um, uh, uh, Jim Collins wrote the business book Good to Great. He analyzed all these businesses. What what takes a good business, uh, a good uh, company, and makes it great into the upper echelon of their industry? One of the things he said was that their leadership is focused on the one thing that matters, and they devote themselves to it, and they do that one thing better than anybody else does it in the world. In other words, your priorities, you keep the main thing, the main thing. The minor prophet Haggai was written with that purpose in mind to call the people of God back to remember what the main thing is and to focus our lives like a laser on that. Not only to know what our priority is, but to live in light of that priority. That's what Haggai was doing. The one thing, actually a couple things that are very interesting about Haggai is we know exactly when Haggai was written. It was written over a four-month period where he gives four different speeches in the year 520, BC, calling them back to remember their priorities. So here we go. In um, This is like the seventh week of our look at the minor prophets, and we've not been looking at it in the order they're found in the Bible, but we've been looking at it in chronological order. So we've come and we've seen the fall of the northern kingdom, Israel to Assyria. We've seen the fall of the southern kingdom. Uh, in, in Judah in 586 B.C. Do so you remember what happened was Babylon, the, the superpower comes and they dominate, they wreck, they destroy Jerusalem, uh, the temple and all of that is, is gone and they take the people of God into exile in Babylon. That happened in 586 B.C. Now, after about 40 years have passed, A new empire rises up to power, It was Assyria, they got destroyed, taken over by Babylon. Babylon falls and they're taken over by the Persian Empire. If you remember the movie 300, if you remember the book of Esther, these things happened in the Persian Empire during this time. So the Persian Empire rises to power, and they're overseeing that that, that massive uh, swath of land in the ancient Near East, including the people of God of Judah in Babylon. And so you've got the Persian Empire ruling, and their foreign policy strategy was very different from the strategy of Babylon. Babylon's was, listen, we got a lot of land, so we're going to bring you into our land, and we're going to rule you from here. The Persians were different. The Persian view was, hey, listen, A happy subject is a loyal subject. So you don't need to stay here where we are. You can go back to your homeland, and if you're happy there, then we believe you're going to be loyal to us. So go back to your home if you want. If you want to stay here, that's cool. But if you want to go back to your land, back to your own home, you can do that just as long as you remain loyal to the Persian Empire. And so in 539 B.C., uh, the uh, king, the emperor Cyrus, issued an edict that you could go back. And he allowed the Jewish people to go back to Judah, all who wanted to go back. But 40 years have passed since Babylon came and wrecked their home and brought them into the place where they now live. And so the question is, will they go back or will they stay? Well, the great majority of the Jews had become quite comfortable with living life in Babylon. Anti-God, anti-Christianity, anti-everything, it was comfortable They were now pretty much assimilated into Babylonian culture and the language and their customs and their riches and their gods. They were pretty much pretty comfortable living life in Babylon. They had it made. They made money. They were doing well. And so when the invitation was given, there was actually only a small minority of people that went back to Judah. But they went with one purpose and with one purpose only. They said, let's go back to our home and let's rebuild The temple of God. For all the people that had been been displaced, there was a tiny group of people that said, God matters to us. The glory of God matters to us. The temple of God matters to us. And so we're going to go back and we're going to rebuild. And so in 536 BC, they go back and they begin building the temple of God in order that the worship of God would be restored to the people of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful true story, except that it wasn't. Because after a short while, they stopped the rebuilding project. And by the time Haggai rises up to speak in 520 BC, 16 years later, all you have is just the the, the scant foundations of a temple and everyone else has abandoned the temple to go and do the things that they want to do. And so rising up into this vacuum comes Haggai and he speaks. And we're going to read Haggai chapter 1. There's four speeches that he gives. One of them is in chapter 1. The other three in chapter 2, but we're just going to look at what he says in chapter 1 because I think this captures the heartbeat of the message of Haggai. What happened in those years where the people who were once so passionate for the glory of God had abandoned that for other pursuits? What happened? Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius on the first day of the sixth month, So he's dating it here. Okay, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So you've got the word of God through Haggai coming to the civic leader, Zerubbabel, and the spiritual leader, Joshua. Okay, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people, okay, the remnant that left Babylon to come back say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, is it, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house of God, the temple, remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but aren't warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Therefore, because of you, the heavens has withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of their people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people, I'm with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is God's Word. I don't know what you're hearing as you read this. I hope, again, you've been watching the the, the Bible Project videos that come along with this teaching. But the amazing thing, and this is what makes Haggai unique amongst all of the prophetic books, is at the end of this section and at the end of the book, the people of God actually listen to the prophet, and they obey the Word of the prophet. This is like the prophet's dream come true, a pastor's dream come true, a preacher's dream come true, that you say something, you feel is a message from God, and people actually obey. (laughs) It says here they obeyed, and in the years 515 BC, five years after Haggai spoke, the temple was completed. They actually went in obedience. So what's going on here? What happened between the years 536 and in 520 that caused them to stop and what caused them to start the rebuild again. There are a couple things that we see. Haggai is all about our priorities. And the first thing is this, that God okay, will give sign, God will send a sign okay, when your priorities are out of whack. Okay, it, may, it may look different or sound different in, in your outline, but the main thing is God will send a sign. God will give a sign when your priorities are out of order. Throughout the people of God, throughout Israel's history, there were constant signs when their relationship with God was no longer their priority. There were signs. They would usually come in nature and in war. So in nature, if there was was a famine, if there was a drought, if there was a bad harvest, if locusts ate all the crops, then they knew that their priorities were out of line and God was bringing them a sign. The other thing is if they would go to war with the Philistines or they'd go to war with the Amalekites or they'd go to war with the Egyptians, whomever it is that they went to war with, if their priority was not God, then the sign that their priorities were off is that they would lose in battle. So curses in nature and in war were how they knew that God was not their priority in life because this is what God does. He sends signs to remind us that something is not right within our lives. Here's the remnant of God in 5 39 BC, sent back, and in 536, they go back with the purpose of building, and they begin to rebuild with excitement, not because the, the, the edifice was important, but because of what the temple represented. The temple is where God and people came together to meet and worship. The temple not being there meant there's no place for us to worship. And so rebuilding the temple meant we need to rebuild our relationship with God. We need to come back to the heart of God. We need to come back to the glory of God. We need to care about the glory of God. We need to have God as our priority again. That's why we come back from Babylon. That's why they came back to Judah, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple for the glory of God. And yet after a few short months... You go into the Temple Mount and you realize that there's nothing there, just the traces of a project that was begun that is not yet finished. Kind of like the Clear Channel building, the I-4I sword that you see when you're driving on I-4. That building that was begun, but it was unfinished. That's what people saw whenever they walked by the temple. It was a sad. It was a pitiful sight of people whose passion for the glory of God led them back to Jerusalem but whose priorities soon became out of, li- out of line. What was their priority then? Well, here's, here's what it says in, um, in verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Somewhere along the line, these who'd come back for the glory of God began building a devotion, a house of worship to God. But somewhere along the way, they got sidetracked. And the priority that led them back to Jerusalem fell into disorder and their own houses became their priority. Their own desires, their own comfort, their own riches, their own pleasure became their desire. Could that be said of some of us? The reason you moved here to Orlando was in order that you would get your spiritual life in order. The reason you started coming back to church was so that you could get your life back in order. The reason why you came with your friend to our youth ministry was in order that you could get your life back together. But somewhere along the line, your own desires, your own dreams, your own kingdoms became a little bit more important than the glory of God. And you who used to love God, you who used to serve God, only come out of matter of duty and only out of matter of obligation now. Could that describe you the way that it described the people of God in Haggai's time? What it was for them was they came back and everything had been ruined. Their neighborhood, their cities had been destroyed, and they began building the temple. But then they said, you know what? This is really good. We're actually pretty good at this. Why don't we start building our own homes? Let's build our own houses. Because after all, how can we? We can't build the the house of God if we're always tired. We need a good place to sleep. We need to sleep in comfort." So they began building their own homes. And the reason they gave Verse 2, this is what the people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. In other words, they said, we've got to build our own house first, and then we'll get to the temple of God. That is extracurricular, our homes, our families, that's what's most important to us. And so they began building their own homes. And then he says, is it time for you to live in your paneled houses? What is he saying? A panel on your house means two things. One, it means the house is done. They're no longer building their homes anymore. They've got time. They've got the resources to build the temple of God. But they just, it just wasn't a priority to them anymore. Paneling on their houses meant, okay, we've got our house. We've got our edifice. Now we're going the the extra mile now. We're just trying to make it look nice. We're trying to make it look better than everybody else's home. And what they were doing was they had given all of their resources that were meant for building the kingdom of God to build their own desires and to pad their own bank accounts and to make their own name great and to make their own homes bigger and better and greater while the temple remained in disarray. The problem was a problem of misplaced priorities. Could that be said of some of us as we sit here now, 2,500 years after Haggai was preaching to the people of God? Because you see the first sign, and there are two that we see here. There are many, but there are two signs we see here. The first sign that we see that our priorities are out of line is we begin to make excuses for why we can't do the work of God. Okay, the first reason, the first sign is excuses. I can't do that. It's not the right time. It's not the right time to do it. I'm just a a teenager. It's not the right time. It's not the right time. I'm in college right now. It's my first semester, i got to rush, don't you understand? It's my second semester, i got to rush. The fraternity, the sorority, I've got to rush because I've got to make some friends, right? Friends in college are your lifelong friends. I've make... It's not the right time for me to give myself to God. It's not the right time because I'm a fourth year in college. I'm about to graduate. I've got to graduate. It's time for me to, to get busy with my uh, applying for jobs. There's too many things going on right now. It's not the time for me to get involved in church. It's not the right time right now because I just started my new work. I just started my new job. I'm just t- I'm, I'm studying for my certification exams. I can't get busy with God right now. I can't do it right now. I just started dating. I just started dating, and I need time for this. I just got married. We're about to get married. We need money for, for our own home. We don't have time to give to the work of God right now. That's why I haven't given my tithe for the past 15 years of my life. It just it's not the right time to do it. There will be a time, but when will that time be? When will that time be? God says. There's legitimate reasons when the timing is not right, but a lot of times we know an excuse is a lie that's wrapped up in reasoning. And you know that it's a lie because it's keeping you from making God your priority in life. Well, I, 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 we're, about to get, we're about to get married. Um, we're about to have our first kid. You know, life changes. Life gets crazy then. We're about to have our second kid. We're about to have our third kid. We're about to have our fourth kid. Now, I can't do it now. I'm changing careers right now. I can't give my priority to God. One of the first signs that our priorities are out of line is that we start making excuses for why we can't serve the purposes of God. And you look in your life and the temple of God in your own heart remains in ruins. The place where God meets with you is in ruins. Your Sunday worship life is in ruins. Your own devotional time is in ruins. You look at that and you're like, man, you know what? Where has my... Where's my longing for God gone? Maybe you don't feel that because we want to push that away from us as far as we can. But Haggai says, let's call it what it is. They're excuses. What kind of excuses do we give for why we can't serve the Lord God right now? For why God can't be a priority in our lives right now? For why we can't give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. What's our reason? What's our excuse? Tony Campolo tells a story. He was a professor at Eastern College. He tells a story about years ago, he would take his, uh, some of his college students on uh, mission trips. So he took them, uh, a group of students, down to Haiti, and they did a medical mission, and they set up camp, and one of his students, a guy named Charlie, um, Charlie wanted to, to study medicine, and this trip confirmed that desire. And I've told this story before, but Charlie wanted to study medicine. So he went down with Dr. Campolo and a group of other people. They went to Haiti, and they're doing their medical missions. And he, Charlie said he saw 700 people lined up to receive the rudimentary medical care that they were giving out that day. But he said of all those people, there was so many people with need and so few people with expertise that only 60 or 70 of them were able to get the care that they needed. Okay, this is what some of us have experienced when we go to missions in Ecuador. Right, setting up medical missions, dental missions, ey- eyeglasses, whatever it is. So many people, but so few can actually get seen. That's what Charlie saw. And so that day he made a decision. He said, I'm, I'm going to go into medicine, okay? but I'm going to come back here, Doc. I'm going to come back here and I'm going to make a difference in this community. I'm going to come back here and I'm going to give my life for these people. I'm going to give them what they can't have uh, what they don't have, what we have so freely in America, where there's an abundance of in America. I'm going to go and I'm going to come back. I'm going to train and c- come back here. and I'm going to give myself to this community so they could see that God loves them. Well, time passed, years passed, and uh, Charlie became Dr. Charlie indeed. Did become Dr. Charlie, but he wasn't doing medical missions anymore. One day, Dr. Campolo saw his former student, Dr. Charlie, and they almost bumped into each other as they were walking through New York City. They, they, they kind of run into each other. They recognized each other. Charlie recognized his former professor, and he stopped, and they got to talking. They asked him what he's up to, and he said, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor now. I'm a surgeon. The professor was very proud of him. And he asked him what he was doing, what kind of, what kind of work he was doing, and he kind of, you know, kind of told him, yeah, I'm in, I'm in plastic surgery. Not the plastic surgery that helps people who've been burnt in fires or whose bodies have become deformed and helping them. It's kind of plastic surgery that objectifies women and, and creates these uh, insane standards for people to try, of beauty for people to try to live up to. That kind of, that kind of surgeon. And Dr. Kempolo asked him, you know, Haiti, have you been back to Haiti? He said, no, nah, I haven't gone back to Haiti, but listen, I'm, I've been going to church, and I've been tithing regularly, and, and as a surgeon, I get paid really well, and so my tithe is really, really helping our church. And, and Dr. Kempolo stopped him, and he said, Charlie, you remember, you had a vision. Like, you had a dream. You had a call that God had placed in your life. Remember, you were gonna make a difference in this world. You're gonna you be someone for God's kingdom. You're gonna give all of that, you're gonna give your life, you're gonna study and, and give yourself for the glory of God. I said, but you traded all that for a jag and a jacuzzi. That's what you did. I said you could dress it up however you want, Charlie. But you know what you are? I said you're a sellout. Okay, you're a sellout, that's what you are. You're a sellout, and sadly, that's what some of the people of God who had come from Babylon to Judah had become. They came with a dream. They came with a vision. They came with a call of God. We're going to restore the glory of God to our people. And yet, with a matter of months, they traded all that for a jaguar and a jacuzzi and their own profit and their own gain while the house of God remained in ruins. And sadly, that is the story of some of our lives. That you had a call in your life. You had a purpose and you had a reason. You had a vision. You had a dream that God had given you. You know that you had that vision and God had called you to it. That's why you were serving our youth ministry so faithfully. That's why you are giving your life to children. That's why you wanted to serve in house church ministry. That's why you brought the gospel to people at work. But where is that gone now? Covered up in the weeds and the bushes of our own pride and our own desire and our own selfishness to try and make a name for our own selves. You could dress it up however you want, but the first sign that your priorities are out of line is that you begin to make excuses for why God ought not be a priority in your life right now. The second sign that he gives, though it's not just excuses, is that he brings frustration into our lives. Okay, some of our lives have become frustrated despite your best efforts to make it in this life. You've become frustrated when you look at your life, you look at your job, you look at your school, you look at all the things that you put your mind to. This is what he says here. This is what he says. Okay? He says, you planted a lot, but you're only harvesting a little. Okay, you're eating, but you never have enough. You're drinking, but you never have your food. You're putting on all these clothes, but you ain't warm. You earn wages, but they're going into a purse, and, and it just feels like there's holes in them. He's saying because God is no longer your priority, he's frustrating your life. The question he's asking is, how's life working out for you when God's not your priority? Okay, how's that work? That's what Dr. Phil says, right? How's that working out for you? That's what God is saying throughout Scripture. How's that working out for you? What is your priority? Because Jesus says when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you as well. The way C.S. Lewis says it, is if you've got God as your first thing, if you've got first things right, then second things are going to come. But if you put first, second things first, then you're going to lose out on the first thing, and in time, the second things will be taken from you as well. There's frustration in some of your lives. Your work life isn't going so great. Your love life isn't going so great. Your financial life isn't going so great. You get frustrated. You come to these dead ends. Because God is giving you a sign that He wants to be your first priority. Why? Not because He wants something from you, but because He wants everything for you. That's what He's saying. Because this is how we were meant to live. God gives us signs when He's not our priority. Signs in the form of excuses and in the form of frustration. Are you seeing those signs in your life right now? God is calling us back him as priority number one. That's the first thing that we see. God gives us signs. The second thing that we see is that God gives us a remedy. Okay, God gives us a remedy for when he's not our first priority, when our priorities are off. The worst thing you can hear from a doctor as he gives you a diagnosis is there's nothing that can be done. But our God, the great physician, says there is something that can be done. And We see this at the second part of Chapter 1, what is it that he says we ought to do? When you know, if you know, and some of us know right now, that our priorities have not been God and our priorities are off and it's leading to frustration in our lives, what do you do? Well, there are three things that we see here, and there's many things that we can see, but I just want to kind of boil it down to three things that we can do right now. Number one is remember your passion. Remember the passion you once had and return to it. This is a message that we see throughout Scripture, but we see this clearly in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3 or chapter 2. It says, remember the height from which you've fallen, repent, and return to your first love. It says, remember when your love, your passion for God was so great. Do you remember those times? Do you remember those times? He says, go back to that. The way he says that is in verse 7 says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your way, so think about your life. And then he says in verse 8, go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. In other words, he says, remember those mountains you went up into 15 years ago when you went and you collected the timber and you brought all that down for the mountain so that you could build the house? Remember why you went there in the first place? You went because you longed for the glory of God. You went because you desired God in your life again. You went because you wanted him to be your priority. You left everything in Babylon so that that could be, he could be your prize of your life. Remember that. Go back into the mountains and find your passion again in that place where you lost it. Bring it back to this place and get back to doing what you were doing when your passion was once burning bright and clear. Sometimes I feel like God is really speaking to my heart in this regard. Do you remember those times when you just wanted to spend all night just seeking me in worship and in prayer? Remember that passion that you had for me? Remember when you just wanted to waste your hours and your days in the presence of God and, and two hours, three hours, four hours would just fly by and it seemed like it wasn't enough time to be with me. Do you remember those times? Come back to those times. Remember when you, all you wanted to do was just give yourself to serving the church and the people of God because you knew that you were making an impact for the kingdom. You knew that what you are doing was, uh, was making a difference. You knew that mattered. I think back to some of those days because I don't don't think that my passion is at its high point right now for God and that's humbling and that's hard and that's challenging but I want to go back into the mountain and rebuild. I want to go back to that place where my passion for God's glory was at its peak that my better days would be ahead of me and that as a church our best days would be yet to come. I long for that in my own heart and I want you to long for that in yours as well. God, we want to—we want to be the kind of people that beat for the glory of God, whose hearts beat for the glory of God more than our own kingdoms being built. Remember that passion. I was uh, challenged and convicted early on in the pandemic by uh, none other than a man named Hulk Hogan. I don't know if you know Hulk Hogan, but he was—he's not a theologian. He was—he was a professional wrestler, probably the greatest of all time. But I. I don't know if he's a a Christian. It seems like he is based on what he wrote uh, three months into the pandemic. But he put this on Instagram, and and he wrote something very fascinating. and really got my heart. He said, in the three months since the pandemic has begun, just like God did in in Egypt, God stripped away from us everything that we worship. He said, we worshipped athletes, and God shut down all the stadiums and all the professional sports. Do you remember that? When there was no sports going on. So we used to worship musicians, and God shut down the civic center. Some of you remember that because you had BTS tickets here in Orlando, right? Map of My Soul tour. I had tickets too. I sold them, got a lot of money. I had to give it back for a refund. We worship our musicians, and God shuts down our civic centers. We worship our artists, and God shuts down the concerts. We worship our money, And the stock market crashes. He said, maybe what we need, and this was before the vaccine, he said, maybe what we need more than anything in this pandemic is not a vaccine, but we need to take this time to stop and to come back to the one thing that really matters. It's Jesus. I was like, Hulk Hogan said that? Whoever said it, that we would hear it, that's what's important. Maybe that's what God has been trying to say to us throughout this pandemic or throughout this season of life of frustration. But the first thing is remember your passion and come back to that place. The second thing he says is remember God's grace. Okay, remember God's grace. After all of that stuff, after 15 years of of surrendering to the things of their own hearts in verse 13... Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to Lord the people. Very simply, it says, "I am with you," declares the Lord. Can you imagine, after fifteen years of? Building my own house. Like, how long does it take to build your house? I don't know, 15 years. Building your own house and decking it out with all the fine accoutrements and all of the other things and all of the excess stuff around it while the house of God remains in ruins. Imagine doing that for 15 years, and then God says, hey, 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 I want you to come back to me and remember that I'm with you. No matter how much you failed, no matter how much you ran from me, no matter how much you stopped caring about me, remember that I am with you. You. Remember that I'm with you. I've never left you. I will not leave you if you're my people. Remember grace. Last um, last week, as we prepare for Easter Sunday, we're doing a lot of different things to prepare for Easter Sunday. But one of the things we're doing is we're talking to people who are going to confirm their faith and those who want to get baptized and those who want to baptize their, their children. And and last week we heard a couple of testimonies and um, the testimonies were shared just really um, just powerful testimonies of God's goodness and His nearness and His presence in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of waywardness, in the midst of hardships in life, but the ever faithfulness of God running through all of it. And as we were uh, listening and just giving some feedback, um, our elders were there as well. And one of them, Chris, said, um, just kind of reminds me of the old poem, The Footprints in the Sand. And most of you probably remember this if you're over the age of 10. If you're under the age of 10, you may not know, but All of us uh, probably heard this, but it's about a woman who had a dream. She had this dream, and in that dream, she was walking on the beach with God. And um, there are two sets of footprints as they walked along the journey of life. And in, in the sky, different scenes from her life began to flash. Moments of laughter, moments of happiness, moments of joy, but at the same time, moments of pain mixed into all of that. And as she's walking through the journey of life, She noticed that during the hardest times in her life, she looked down and there's only one set of footprints. And she was disturbed by that. And she was frustrated by that. She couldn't understand. And so she finally asked God. She said, God, why is it that during the hardest moments of my life, I was there alone? There's only one set of footprints and you did not walk with me through those hardships. And the voice of God responded. He said, my child, my child, during the hardest moments of your life where you see only one set of footprints, it's not that you're walking alone, but it's during those times that I was carrying you. And for as many times as we may hear that the more we live life and the more we go through those hard moments of life, the more we realize the power and the truth of that statement. That God promises that I am with you in the hardest moments of your life brought on by your own failure, by the failure of other people, by the hurt of other people, just by the brokenness of this world. God's grace is that there's not a moment in your life that you'll ever walk alone, and when you feel like even some of us today feel like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here because of all the things that I've done, because I'm going through some hard stuff right now. I'm going through some rebellion right now. God is carrying us into this place in order that we might see that he loves you and that he cares for you and that he's with you and that his grace overflows and it's, it's most visibly seen in the times where we need it the most. He says, I am with you. Remember his grace, he says. You remember your passion and you go back to that place. You remember His grace, and then the last thing He says to get back to our priorities, He says, rebuild my house again. Okay, get back to building my house. Right, get back to serving God again in the way that you know He's calling you to do it. That's so what He says at the end of, the end of Haggai. It says in, in verse 14, the second part, it says, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. And five years later, the temple was complete. Go back and rebuild the house of God. Get back in serving God. Okay, if some of you have stopped. Okay, some of you had stopped. You were in SLT, you are in JSLT, and you stopped for whatever reason. You made an excuse for why you couldn't do it. But God's saying, come back to it. Some of you had a desire burning in your heart at one point and you're right about to step over the line and make that, make that call, make that, have that conversation about, okay, I'm ready to be a health church shepherd, but you pulled back and God's been haunting your heart, the hound of heaven, calling you to come back to Him and to get back into it again. You had dreams and you had visions and you put it off onto the back burner and God's saying, come back and build my house again. Because you see, somewhere along the line, It happens in the life of every servant of God. We work and we work, and it's exciting for a little bit. Maybe it's hard for a little bit, but there comes a time when we look at what we've built and we say, you know what? I'm not sure if it's worth it. I'm not sure if it's worth it to keep on going. Chapter 2 tells us, and you could read this. Chapter 2 will tell us that as they began rebuilding the temple, they looked at the temple. They're like, hold up, hold up, hold up. This is not as big as the temple that Solomon had built. Remember the one that people from all nations came over to, to look at its architectural beauty? This ain't, this ain't that nice. No, it's actually, it's, it's smaller. It's uglier. It's less beautiful. It's actually kind of like kind of like pretty ghetto, this thing that we're building. And they're like, is it, is it worth it for us to keep on going? And what God says to them, and you could again read this in chapter 2, He says, listen, I'm doing a work that you don't even know. The glory of this temple is going to be greater than the former temple. Keep going, keep at it, because I'm working in ways that would blow your mind if you would see what I'm about to do, if you could see it right now. Don't give up. Don't give up. Last night we um, met together as house church shepherds. we do every month. And we meet every month because the temptation for shepherds is to quit. Do you know that? If you're not a house church shepherd, you may not know that. But there's a temptation that many of our shepherds have felt to give up and to quit and to throw in the towel. They get frustrated. People don't change. People don't respond to our texts. People show up without saying they're going to be there, and now we don't have enough food. There's frustration. People don't change. Tell them what to do. They don't do it. They're frustrating. It's easy for people to feel tempted to give up. And so we meet each week to keep our eyes on the prize, to say, keep on going because it's worth it. Whether you see it in this life or not, there will be a day that comes when we will meet Jesus and we will long to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Until that day, let's run because it's not for them, it's for him that we serve. So last night we had some time just to go around and let's share. Can you just share one person in your house church that you are thankful for? And people went around and they shared about the person who encourages me so much. This person is there when I just, I want to throw in the towel, they have the right word to say. When I feel like I'm so frustrated. They smile, they hug me, and they understand what I'm going through. They listen so well to the struggles of other people when, when they become so prideful and others are prideful. They listen and they lock in and they want to support. They're so faithful. Whatever it is that they say, just each one of them going around and sharing. You couldn't repeat, so there's different people. And so we're talking about all these people in our church for whom we're thankful for. One person, one shepherd said, you know what? Sometimes it's so hard. We have such difficult people in our house church, but... I remember the person in our house church who brings me such joy. They were baptized some time ago, and on the day of their baptism, uh, one relative came up to me, and they said that I've been praying for 10 years for this person to come to know the Lord. Because when we knew them when they were young, they didn't want anything to do with God. They hated God. They hated church. But to be here on the day of their baptism is a reminder that God is working. And this person said, sometimes I wonder if it's worth it. But when I see this person at house church each week, I'm reminded that God is at work within our house church. Another person said, when this person was brought, it came into my house church. I said, oh no, this is going to be a hard one because they don't like God and they don't like me and they challenge everything that I do and everything that I say. They complain about it. But I stayed the course, and the person went on to say that this person in their house church slowly began to change, and now as one of their most faithful members, one of the most consistent members, one of the most helpful members, they've seen together so many uh, different prayers that have been answered within their own house church as well as within the life of this person, and this shepherd went on to say, I realize that shepherding and serving God is a long game, and I'm so glad that I didn't quit when I wanted to, because if I had, then I wouldn't have been able to see what I now see. And around and round and on and on it went, just being reminded that God is good. And the whole point of all of that was to say that God is at work within our midst, in the places in which you're serving in ways that you don't even know. And if you give up, you would not see some of the things that God is wanting you to see, that you could only see if you stay in the game long enough. God is at work doing things that you don't see. And so he says, let's get back in the game. For some of you, it means let's get back to it. Okay, you were once so faithful to God, but you've stepped away for different reasons. He says, let's come back to it. Let's come back to it. Some of you, God has been burdening your heart to start serving in some way and you've resisted that call because of some comfort in your life. God says, let's come back to it now. Let's reprioritize God and His glory and His kingdom. It was never about the temple. It was about what it meant. It meant the glory of God. It meant a passion for God. It meant putting God first again in our lives, the meeting place of God and His people. Let's come back to our priorities. Remember your passion. This is the remedy. Remember, restore, come back to it. Remember His grace. He's with you always. And let's rebuild the temple but you see the ultimate remedy for our misplaced priorities would come not in the building of this temple but actually in the another temple that would come 500 years later that temple too would one day be destroyed as a sign of god's judgment but instead of taking years and decades and centuries to rebuild that temple would be rebuilt in three days. Jesus said, this temple is my body. He's the final and true temple, the temple, the meeting place between God and man, the only place, the only reason why we can meet with God in holiness, is because of Christ. He is the meeting place. Look here, He, he is the meeting place between God and humanity. The only way that we could be brought back to Him to God and that be brought back to our priorities is if we understand that Jesus came and He gave His all for us in order that we could see and know how much He values our lives and how much He wants us to get back into the ministry of serving His church and building His kingdom. Are there signs in your life that your priorities are out of line? God will give you these signs, but He'll also give you the remedy. He's calling us to come back to Him today. Today as we hear His voice, let's live in obedience. Let's come back to our priorities. Let's make Him first again in our lives. Let's pray together. Let's uh, take a few moments to pray and to seek the face of God. Let's not turn a deaf ear to what we've heard, and let's not just say, okay, that was a good message for her or him. Let's hear that God is reaching out to us. How has God been sending signs to you that something else has taken first place? Are you frustrated with life? Feel like you're beating your head against a wall trying to make things happen? God says, seek first the kingdom of God again. Have you given reasons why God shouldn't be a priority in your life? Let's come back to Him. Let's spend a minute in prayers of repentance and rededication to the Lord God. Let's come back to His heart. We're going to come to this table of God's grace to receive communion for those who have been baptized or confirmed. So let's spend some time in repentance. Surrender, asking the Lord to renew us through the blood that he shed, that Jesus shed for us. Let's come back to his heart, spend a few moments in prayer that way. Father in heaven, we thank you that it's your grace, it's your goodness, it's your love that brings us to repentance. Father, we lay down our sins of pride, of selfishness, of misplaced priorities, of idolatry, of greed, of anger, of laziness, things that we've given ourselves to Father we pray that you would just pour the cleansing fountain, the blood of our Lord Jesus over us that we might be cleansed and renewed pray that you would give us new hearts clean hands, purity of devotion, singularity of of priority that it would be you Jesus and you alone Father, show us that every intent of your heart is good. And if you really are good, then everything that you allow us to go through is because you love us and because there's something good that you want to do in us. So Father, would you bring us back to your heart today? Lord, grant us the humility, the obedience, the grace uh, to come back to our priorities, to find them in Jesus. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.